Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Each week, Dr. Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest on a range of compelling topics, from literature to psychology to financial wellness. To learn more about Dr. Crosby's behavioral finance work at Orion, visit www.orion.com. So a scientist and a storyteller walk into a podcast studio. (laughs) That's how the story goes, right? Well, that's how it goes here, my friends. I'm super excited for this four-part mini-series with my B5 bestie, Dr. Daniel Crosby, Chief Behavioral Officer at Orion and the host of Standard Deviations Podcast. This is not the first time Daniel and I are teaming up but it may be the best yet. I've been on his podcast, he's been on mine, and now we are joining forces because successful sales is art and science. It's right brain and left brain. It's Daniel's unique ability and it's mine together. If you want to get good at selling, you've come to the right place. I don't know, it's kind of like two rappers in the studio freestyling. At least that's what I'm telling myself. So, Stop, collaborate, and listen. Here we go. Welcome to the fourth and final installment of The Scientist and the Storyteller, a joint production, a billion-dollar backstory, and the Standard Deviations podcast. I am your host for today, Dr. Daniel Crosby, and I'm joined by my good friend and storytelling wizard, Stacey Havener. Welcome to the show, Stacey. Thank you for having me. Can we just pause? To talk about how this is the final installment. I'm sad. Well, the people are sad too, because they've learned a lot and they've had a great time doing it. Yeah. Well, this has been this has been a blast. I think it was this was all props to you. This was your idea, and it's been just fantastic. So well done. I agree. I agree. And you know, we're here for encore yeah. performances. Should anyone request that? That's so great. just in case. That's right. What are we talking about today? Well, today we're going to the dark side, Stacey, uh, because we are not we are not afraid. Uh, we are not afraid to use our knowledge of behavioral finance to go to the dark side. And one of the things that we know about human nature is that people are two and a half times as motivated by loss as they are happy about a comparably sized gain. Mm. So, so today, in in previous episodes, we've been talking about how uh, to make your story great. Now we're going to talk about how to make your story not suck. And we are doing this in honor of the late Charlie Munger, who we lost just recently, famous for popularizing the the term invert, always invert. That's what we're going to do this week. We're going to invert the conversation. We're going to look at the hallmarks of the worst stories and talk about some of the, mm. the traps that people fall into when telling their stories. And we're going to make sure our good listeners don't fall into these traps. What do you think? I think it's brilliant. Okay. Let's do this. Well, I know I know you're going to go to the dark side with me. So yeah. the first, I pulled a couple of these. I read a bunch of articles, right? Super scientific. I read a bunch of articles on sort of the hallmarks of the worst stories and then, frankly, I just went and thought about the worst movies I've watched, the worst books I've read, the worst pitches I've listened to, and really came up with a couple of these on my own. Okay. And you and I talked about this first one. We both hate this. The first reason your story may stink, we're, we're tempering the language a bit. It's a family show. 
Yeah. Okay, that's fine. It's family show. It's too linear. It's too bullet pointy. Yeah. It's too first this, then that. Talk to us about why do people go down this path and, and what's the problem with this approach? Okay. It's so true. This is, I love this whole vibe of inverting because it's so true because it's so easy to tell, especially your backstory in a linear way. Why is that? Because we typically want to start at the beginning and the easiest place for us in a professional setting to start is like the beginning of our careers. And so what ends up happening is the story becomes a resume. I worked here. I did this. Then I went here, I did that, and now I'm here and I do this over here. And nobody's vibing mm-hmm. with that story. Because here, and and again, going back to previous conversations we've had, why aren't they vibing? There's no tension. It's not interesting. There's no villain. Where are we going? Where are we, we started here? Where are we trying to get to? Like, it just leaves out all of the components that make a story powerful. You've just, you've taken the opportunity to tell a story and then you made it a bad one. Mm -hmm. So bullet point, so a story is not a resume. A story is not a resume. And I think because, especially in the investment industry, people are uncomfortable talking about themselves with any kind of authenticity or vulnerability. The default is, I'm going to go to a very surface place, a very fact-oriented place, and I'm just going to tell you my resume, and I'm going to call it a backstory, and there we go. And it's a bomb. So I remember, because how could I forget, I remember the first time you were on my podcast back in the solo days, when you were on my podcast, and you started talking about your story, and you said something to the effect of like, well, it all started on the soccer pitch or so, you know, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, here's this champion for boutique asset managers. And you immediately have my attention because it's like, well, how did she get from, you know, the soccer pitch to the boardroom, so to so to speak? Yeah. And it is a bit of that, you know, record scratch, freeze frame, like, yep, that's me. I bet you're wondering how I got here, trope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Totally. From the movies, right? Totally. And I think we were chatting about this the other day. I think the challenge, there's a couple challenges around story. One is what's the story? Okay. Then the second piece is how are you going to tell it? And you have to get both of them right. I mean, the bullet point thing, you haven't even got the story down. But what compounds the problem is that now you're telling it in a way that just is stinking up the joint. So you've got a bad story and a bad delivery, and that's just a recipe for disaster. So the example that you just gave is helpful if you find yourself defaulting to bullet points and boring, challenge yourself to start at a different place other than the beginning. What if you started at the end and then went backwards and then built up to the end again? right? That has a nice structure and delivery to it. What if you started in the messy middle? Like it's 2008, the markets are collapsing. Like, I mean, you could start in like the messiest part of your story and kind of build that intrigue and all those things. So I think there's a real art to not just crafting the story, but to telling it. And the bullet point thing is not it. Yeah. 
you know, bringing in a little bit of psychology like we do on this joint show, there's something we've talked about a bit in previous episodes called the peak in rule, where people have the best memory for sort of the the most emotional. I mean, it could be best or worst, like the most emotional part of an exchange and then and then how it is. Right. And so I think in this linear kind of stinky way that we're talking about, it's just bullet point, bullet point, bullet point. And then here we are today. And like the ending is terrible. Like the ending is terrible, <laughs> right? There's no, there's no real peak. The ending is boring as can be. And so I love the idea of starting in that messy middle, like the point of max conflict or even starting yeah. in like movies do. Find that emotional peak, begin with that, and then tighten up the ending to make it just as memorable because that peak and the end are what people are going to remember. And there's no peak in sophistication to an enumeration of a bunch of bullet points. No. And you know, you, uh, so I love when we combine science and story, obviously, hence we're here. But what's so great about that is one of the best pieces of advice that I've received around storytelling has to do with memorizing. And maybe this will come back because memorizing your story or memorizing your presentation is also a horrible way of telling of delivery, right? That's not a good way to do it. However, for people, especially again, in our industry where, you know, you want to have your notes and your script and all this stuff, the advice was nail the beginning and nail the end. Those are like the two things that you can memorize and really make sure you hit. And then in the middle, just, you know, you don't memorize it. Mm -hmm. And that helps the the story have a powerful start and a powerful end, which you just said from a psychology perspective, a science perspective, that's what matters. And then in the middle, it's just as real. So I love that. Yeah, I'm a big, uh, I watch Shark Tank with my kids. It's like the one show we can all agree on, right? And so we watch Shark Tank together sometimes. And you'll see people here on the biggest stage of their life. And because they've memorized their presentation down to a T, like one of the sharks will interject or make a joke or something. And they're thrown so thoroughly mm. that they can't even continue. And it's like, yeah, you should be fluent, right? Like you should know the material. You should have fluency with the material, but that's different than the sort of rote memorization that do if you forget it for a second. Okay. Did you just drop an F-bomb? Buck. <laughs> Buck. Come on now. Family show. I was like, this family show just really took a turn. Oh, okay, some sucky to stinky. Buck, it's a horse. <laughs> it's a horse analogy. I'm from Alabama. Come on. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Second one, you now this is you. You just spell pray to this. We're going to make you an example. You don't know the audience, Stacy. <laughs> you don't know who you're talking to. Wholesome, wholesome guy that I am. Right. The second one is you. You know, I'll, I'll liken it to uh, my first job out of my PhD program was doing a pre-employment assessment. So I would come into an organization and help them hire good people. And one of the things that I always found in dysfunctional organizations is that these people had hired a hundred clones of themselves, right? So we tend to see the world through our own lens. Psychology is very clear in stating that we tend to like people who are like us. And so when we're telling a story, I think sometimes we can under-research the person sitting across the table from us 
and tell a story that we think is cool or emphasize points that that we think are important that may have little relevance to them. Talk to us about knowing our audience. Yes. Oh my gosh. Well, I think it applies in so many different forms because so if I take it to the industry that we're in, knowing your audience, yes. And even before that, knowing the audience that you want to be speaking to is super important. Because if I'm a new fund and I and we've talked about this before on other podcasts, if I'm a new fund and I'm like, huh, I just broke out of this big firm and this huge uh, consultant had, you know, clients that had a billion dollars with us. So I'm going to call that consultant first at my new co with no money, no track record. Mm -hmm. So the first problem with the audience is, you know, you get to pick your target audience when in this biz. And a lot of times you pick the wrong one. Then you try to tell a story to them that you think they want to hear, but you can't do it because it's that the story you are actually living is not the story they want to hear. And then I don't care how good of a storyteller is, you can't spit it. Okay. So the first thing is like kind of know who your target market is. The second piece, which is what you described, is okay, now you have a meeting with somebody and you just assume. Somebody said a suicide to me today. And I was like, oh, that's a really interesting term. You just assume that they're going to want to geek out on the stuff that you're going to want to geek out. Let's talk about how that shows up. I'm a fund manager. I love the market. I love all the nuance or I'm a quant and I love all the Greeks and all that stuff. And so now I come to a meeting with a family office and I'm thinking we are going to geek out on markets and numbers and data. And do you know what the family office is doing? Tuning you out because they don't vibe on that. Mm-hmm. That is really common and really challenging for fund managers to break. They just assume that the stuff that lights them up, their unique ability, is what the investors want to talk about. The reality is, you know what people want to talk about? Them. Yeah. They want to talk about them and the things that are important to them and the things that light them up. And if you come into the conversation talking about you and what lights you up, that's a recipe for disaster. I have a a great story from a previous employer. We won't share any identifying information, but One of the advisors that we served was in line for a huge piece of business, hundreds of millions of dollars. This investor had had a massive exit, sold the business, and it was down to two final advisors. Who were they going to work with? So our advisor was on the young side, and I think they felt a little insecure. And again, I want to be clear, this was before I was working with them. So they, they go into this presentation with all the Greeks, right? They're a little young, they're mm. feeling a little insecure, and they're like, here's how I'm going to take your you know, quarter of a billion dollars that you've just earned and how I'm going to compound it at a clip that is you know, above and beyond what anyone else can, can do, right? Here's how I'm the smartest person in the room, and I'm going to get you the biggest ROI on this 250, 250 million. Well, the other advisor took a very different approach and won the business because the client, all they were worried about, right? They're like 250, like put it in treasuries. Who cares? Like, what are we, we can't, like, you can't, 
Like you can't spend that much money. You know what I mean? Like $250 million. Like what am I going to do with that? They had young children and they're like, our only concern is how do we help our kids be high functioning, productive, generous, kind, capable members of society when they are growing up from a young age with life changing wealth? Like how do I let these kids not be leeches and just, you know, it bums when they realize that they don't have to really do anything ever and they'll still have an extraordinary level of comfort. And our advisor just went a totally different direction, assuming that, you know, these big money clients were going to want make big money. They didn't care a, a bit, right? They wanted to just do a 50-50 index, let it ride and take care of their kids, right? And, oh, and they lost a life-changing piece of business because they didn't know the audience. They didn't know the story yeah. we talked about. Okay. So here, can we talk about here's how you can fix that yeah. really quick? Like, let's say that you did not have time to prepare. You're in the meeting mm. and you don't know anything about the person you're talking to. You want to know how you flip the script? You ask a question. I think there's all this pressure on you, like we'll use your example as the advisor, to pitch. And you don't have to do that. Nobody said you have to walk in and start talking and not stop until the meeting's over. You can walk in and get them talking. And you know what that does? Well, A, they love the meeting now because it's about their talking. Mm -hmm. It's about them. You also can ask questions and find out through discovery what is important to them. Like, hey, if we're sitting here three years from now, what does success look like to you? Get them talking about how did they, how did they, what their business, how did they build this wealth? Just get them talking because you're going to get so many clues that will inform whatever stories or whatever narrative or whatever sales pitch you're going to deliver can be informed by what they say to you right there in the meeting. Let them go first. Ask questions. Story listening is just as valuable as storytelling. So there's, by some accounts, time of possession. If you think about two people who have just met, conversational time of possession by some measures is the best predictor of how much those two people will like each other when they, when they part ways. And the more you can let someone talk, the more they're going to like you, Right. The more you let someone talk, the more they're going to leave that inter interaction and go, hey, I really I really like her. She's great. Yeah. And it's because you got to talk about yourself the whole time. <laughs> so yeah. going back to what you said earlier, you really I think we feel too much pressure to, to perform, to pitch, to fill every silent moment. And there's so much value to be had in just asking a question. And you know what? Do you, you consider yourself an introvert? No. Okay. I would agree with that. However, I think this is one of the reasons why introverts are really good salespeople. Mm. Because as an introvert myself, which no one ever believes, but maybe I'm an introvert, whatever. The thing that makes me most comfortable as an introvert is not talking. Mm. And so I am very happy to ask questions because the spotlight is not on me. And I love hearing people's stories. And even though I am a good storyteller, I wonder how much of that, just that, helped me 
raise so much money Mm -hmm. because naturally I did not want the spotlight and I asked a ton of questions and genuinely enjoyed learning about these people. Yeah, it's a great point. People confuse uh, social skills with introversion and extroversion, right? Someone like you, very socially skilled, that's not the same thing as as where you get your energy from. So pe- folks are smart yeah. on the lookout for that too. Okay, number three, the third reason why it may stink because this is a family uh-huh. is your concept. Your concept is too too samey, right? Mm. So you work with you work with asset managers, right? There's now more ETFs and hedge funds than there are individual securities on my side of the of the world. I work primarily with advisors. There's 300,000 advisors in the U.S., right? 300, that's like a, that's like a nice sized city full of advisors. If you're one of the whatever, 10,000 hedge funds or 300,000 financial advisors, you cannot afford to be samey. And yet so often, I think we're all speaking the same language, whether it's, you know, value and growth or whether it's, you know, your outsourced CIO or wherever it is, like we're all sort of speaking the same language. How can we stand apart in such a crowded room? Yeah. Well, it's great. I mean, it's, let's stay in the in the sort of the negative, right? The inverse for a second before we give them advice, because I think why people do that is they're scared. Because even though, like, if I put a quote out on social and I was like, why blend in when you're born to stand out? Everyone would be like, like, heart, heck yeah, you know, all the things. But let's just unpack that for a second. Human nature is actually not to stand out, Mm. right? Like, just for survival, we are sort of in it. It's in our nature to want to fit in. So... While intellectually we know standing out is the way to win business or just live a life that means something to you, all the things, we don't really at our core want to do it. And so what we, so how that shows up when you're in a meeting or you know crafting your website language is you sound like everybody else because it's safe. And it's comfortable and you think people will like you because they like other people who say those things. So you should just copy them. Standing out is scary. It's lonely. People may not like what you're saying you're all about. And I think as humans, well, I defer to you. Like that, that is not easy for a human to do. Yeah. So I, I have a couple of chapters about this in the behavioral investor, but you know, a quick a quick point that always stood out to me, value investors, there was research on value investors, can true like deeply contrarian value investors suffer physical pain as a consequence of those positions. It's literally physically painful to swim upstream of the rest of humanity. And we are I mean, you, you've all know Harari, the guy who wrote Sapiens. He argues that our greatest, our greatest human trait is our ability to work together, right? That's what separates us from the rest of the animal kingdom. That's why, you know, we can build cultures and civilizations and governments and religions and whatever. It's because we can work together towards a common goal. 
And it's painful to stand out from that. So that's point number one. We are wired for conformity. Psychological point number two is that we dramatically overestimate our own degree of uniqueness, right? So how many times, like Twitter, Twitter and LinkedIn are amazing for this. You know, they're like, bit of a hot take here, like unironically, right? Here comes a, uh, call me a contrarian, but, and then it's the most bland thing you've ever heard. It's like, call me a, this is a bit of a hot take, but pizza is delicious or something. And you're like, wait, what? Everyone agrees with that. Yeah. Everyone thinks that. And so I think, you know, from a psychological perspective, know that you are wired for conformity. This won't come easy for you. And if it doesn't hurt a little bit, if it doesn't feel a little risky or a little dangerous, that's probably a good reminder to you that your story is a little samey. And then the second thing is just know that you're overestimating almost inevitably. You're overestimating the degree to which you're unique. Yeah. So I just love when like what I feel in the wild and real in real world has like, you know, you're like, yes, actually, that's a thing. I'm always like, God, that's so great how the world works, science and all. I wanted to add to that if you want. So again, so that's what you're going to you're wired to do. So how do you combat that? Well, I have two ways that we advise our clients to do this. One is ask. So instead of saying what you stand for, talk about what you stand against. Talk about all like uh, my peers do this and I don't agree with those things. I do that over here. Like, you know, I'm here's where I'm different from them. Almost like a point counterpoint. And something about that exercise feel it's easier to talk about what you don't do than it is to talk about what you do do that's unique, right? So like going in the inverse, kind of our theme today, actually will get you to differentiators quicker than if you try to talk about, here's what I stand for, what we believe in, and and the hallmarks of what we do at our firm. Like that's not going to get you there. So that's one exercise you could do. The other exercise, I totally forgot what I was going to say. So we're just going to leave you with that exercise to get to what you don't do that makes you different because I cannot pull forward the other one. It's fine. We're on the invert, always invert uh, thing today. Your brain inverted. My for brain a inverted. What was yeah. I? I'm just trying to make you feel better. I didn't forget his name. Politician from Texas. Politician from Texas a few years ago, and he's like, "Well, there's three. There's three branches of government. Or no, sorry. There's three departments that I'd like to get rid of." And he's like, it's this, this, and then I forgot the third one. They're like, you want to get rid of a, a governmental department that you can't remember the name of? That was the end of his political career, Stacey, and probably the end of your career. So when you go, when you say something, when there's something that you want to put on your website or something you want to say, and you're like, okay, this is going to be my, this is my jam. This is what makes me different. Ask yourself this question. Could another company that does what you do put this on their website and it be true? Mm, That's great. If it can, not good enough. If that can be used for another company, it is not unique. I like that. So I've never heard it used in that regard. I've heard it used with mission, vision, and value statements. We used to help people, again, early days right out of college. That was, I was a consultant. That was one of the things we did. 
And sometimes you'd be working with, you know, a boutique asset manager and they have their mission, vision and values. And you're like, well, this would also work for an oil change company. right? <laughs> and so I'm not sure. I'm not sure how germane to what you do this is. I love that. Right. So invert, figure out what you stand against and figure out if anyone else could make a similar claim. You got there. You got there. That's right. There, I did. Thank you for the help. It's, it's you know, yeah. it isn't easy. Case of our penultimate reason your story may stink is that the plot is too complicated, kind of like the word penultimate, right? So let's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, I run into this all the time with, with movies. I'm watching a movie. I'm halfway on my phone and I'm like, wait, who is that again? Right? <laughs> So talk about the power of simplicity. Why do we need to keep the plot of our story simple and streamlined? Yes, that's a, a great. And it happens in books to me all the time. It's like, you've just introduced so many characters. I have to go back. Like, could you have like a family tree or something? Like, I can't even keep this straight. So, well, before I talk, I actually have a question for you. Is our brain wired not to want to deal with all that complexity? Like, I feel like my brain actually can't comprehend it. Like, when you give me too many characters, my brain just shuts down. Maybe that's my brain because it's been shutting down during this conversation. But is that a thing? You know, it, it, it absolutely is. It's called chunking. We can hold like seven chunks of information. And if you even think about like how a phone number is is sort of laid out. You know, it'll be like five, 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 mm. you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And it's not, it's not, if it were 10 sequential numbers with no pause, right? No brackets, people couldn't remember that because that would be 10 chunks of data. But if you chunk it into three, three smaller chunks, people have an easier time remembering that. So again, right? If, if you think about our brain, counts for two to 3% of our body weight, but 20 to 25% of all the calories that we burn in a day are, are from thinking. And so your brain is always trying to go into energy saver mode, right? And one of the ways that we need to do this is to streamline things. Mm -hmm. And so we have a real negative, real aversive reaction to just trying to do too much or having things be complicated. We tend to just kind of shut down. Okay, so that's what it feels like, obviously, when you're reading a complicated book. So it's good to know that that's actually happening. I think the reason, so what I typically see in the wild with fund managers is instead of staying right down the middle of the fairway when they are talking about what they do, for instance, they feel compelled to talk about all the anomalies of when they don't do the thing that they typically do. Okay. And again, it's because they're very smart. So they're like, well, and it happens on the fly. So they start out fine. It's like, well, you know, these are the types of things I look for when I invest in a company. And then they remember, except for that one time. And then they feel they have to tell that one time. So it's like, but sometimes I do this. And then, well, actually, there was another time when I didn't even do that. I did this other thing over here. And you're kind of like, what's happening? Because now I feel like you don't have a process. And so I guess what I would say, and, and then when I, I've asked people, like, why did you just do that? Why did you just start talking about all the times that the thing you typically do, you don't do it? And they're like, well, because I want to be transparent. And it's like, okay, well, okay, those aren't the same thing. 
Like when you say, this is our process and this is what we typically do, that's enough. Just then talk about what you typically do. If the person wants to go deeper or wants to know about times when you don't do that, they'll ask you. You don't have to offer up all the uh, one-off situations that could possibly occur. Because when you do, you make the whole thing complicated and the person leaves that meeting and goes, I actually don't know what they do. I don't know what their process is because it's basically one huge, it depends. It depends is the worst statement to me. If I ask you a question and you answer with it depends, I'm like, I already hate this conversation. Just t- give me an answer, even if it's not what if you if it's not what you do a hundred percent of the time, just tell me what eighty yeah. percent of the time is true. Yeah, it it depends. Doesn't instill confidence. So I wrote about a process for managing money in the behavioral investor, and it was uber simple, right? It's basically breaks down to sort of a combo value, quality, momentum, a set of value, quality, momentum screens. And one day I'm going to work with Stacy, and we're going to bring these to the world. And Stacy and I are going to celebrate with lots on a yacht one day. But uh, Say what? until then, I found that people thought it was almost too simple, though. And, you know, it puts me in mind wow. of this thing in psychology called the IKEA effect, right? So the IKEA effect is this understanding that that people will pay more for furniture if they helped put it together, right? So it's like you want it to be a little complicated, Right, a little complicated. The, my my favorite story about this was Betty Crocker rolling out just add water cake mixes, and parents who were making brownies or cakes for their kids actually didn't like it because it didn't feel homemade enough. It didn't feel like they were doing. It wasn't complicated enough, and so they said, "Well, hey, you can add some oil and an egg and, and some water to it." Like, oh, now I made it right. So we know we know that we know that super complicated is going to cause people to shut down, but super simple, I think, can can cause the same thing. There's probably a sweet spot there somewhere in the middle. Any idea on some sort of markers for what that sweet spot might be? What what oh, are we yeah. looking for to know? Well, gosh, what a great anecdote. It reminds me of, and then I'll try to come back to a marker, but it reminds me of the 60-40 allocation, okay? It reminds me of the 60-40, specifically when you get into like big institutional clients. And I have a lot of friends who are consultants and some of them will say like, the best thing we could recommend for a client is pretty simple. However, it's too simple. And remember that the client is paying this consultant to come up with, you know, an asset allocation model and certain strategies that they should include and then find managers that could execute that strategy. And I don't know if it's complexity bias or what it is, but like you can't just say 60-40 index and then a bank account because people go, well, I mean, what? Like, no, I can't. I can't do that. That's way too simple. That's way too simple. I'm not paying you for that advice. I am more unique than that. And so I think you're right. There is a sweet spot. What I would say is I, I'm a big three and five 
type of person, which makes sense because you you described the chunking component. I think that when you're talking about process or kind of philosophy, you know, to really practice, what are the three most important, meaning most different things I could tell someone about my firm, me, our process, any of those things, like challenge yourself to come up with those three things. Now, to your point, they I don't think they can be three things that are so incredibly different than everybody else. One of them should definitely be different. The other two could be a little bit of samey to go back to a previous thing. Like, you know, a lot of value managers look at this metric and this metric I do too. The difference is I look at this one over here as well, right? So you're kind of saying I'm similar yet different. And that to me feels very like I get it. I understand it. When I walk out of that meeting, I can articulate the one thing that really makes you different in that particular area of your business or narrative. So that's kind of how I would combat it. You know, it's so tricky. I have a friend who is a fantastic advisor, but who swears by three ETF Vanguard portfolios. It's like US, XUS, and a bond fund. And he does a great, he is a wonderful advisor. And he loses so many clients during that pitch because he's espousing what is a completely sensible, completely, you know, uh, an evidence-based, sensible approach that they can't stick with. And sometimes I think they're driven into the arms of a less scrupulous advisor who's going to sell them, you know, 28 flavors of the S&P 500 in, you know, in, in some expensive wrapper. And it's, it's almost even hard to talk about because the best advice has two things in common, I think. And it has to be sensible, right? It has to be good. It has to be wholesome, evidence-based, but it also has to be implementable. And sometimes I think simplifying things to such a degree that people can't even hear it is, I think we die on that hill unnecessarily sometimes. So thinking about your process, what are the three to five and where does it sit along that simplicity to excessive complexity continuum? So I want to get to one last one. Yeah. It's uh, while we still have a minute and it's it's timely because it's about it's about your your pitch being too long or boring. Right. So uh-huh. average human attention span is 12 minutes, which is fun for me because uh, I'm routinely asked to speak for 50. But, you know, <laughs> How do we keep things tight and keep things pithy when a lot of times we're going to be shoehorned into 30 minutes or an hour or two hours or whatever it may be? Yeah. So I don't want to reuse this playbook, but I'm going to. Okay, wait, before we solve it, I always want to go to the solution first. Let's talk about why, like how this shows up. So again, I think when different when you're presenting, presenting is different. If you have to speak for an hour, like that's it. You have to speak for an hour. It's not like you can all of a sudden start asking the audience questions for half that time. It's just not going to work. Yeah. Yeah. So, but if you're in a meeting, especially a one-on-one meeting with an an RIA, a, a potential client, whatever it is, what happens is you feel like it's your show. 
you have to pitch to win the business. That's what pitching has shown up as. It's a presentation, not a conversation. It is dog and pony. I am doing it. Like I'm up there. I'm going to walk you through my boring slide deck and I'm going to point to a bunch of charts that you can't even read. And it's just going to be miserable. And that is what the industry has taught us is a good meeting. The reality is the person in that meeting hates the meeting. They are looking at their phone. They're thinking about what they're going to have for dinner. They're looking out the window. They're, you know, they're doing everything but listening to you. And so how can we change that? Well, there's certain, you know, like we said, there's certain times where you can't sort of make it a conversation instead of a presentation. But if you can, do it. Because again, it's going to make that 12 to 15 minutes that you talk more powerful if you let the other person talk first and you ask them questions and you understand what their asset allocation looks like. You understand the problems or challenges that they're having. Then you save the 12 to 15 or 20 minutes of that meeting to be really special and unique as opposed to just blathering on and pointing at stuff that doesn't matter. So I think it's super challenging. It's really, really challenging, especially in this industry, to not blather on or not drag it on or, or to actually make it a conversation and not a presentation. But the if you somehow measured success rate of meetings, and maybe you do by whether or not someone invests with you, your, if your metric would go through the roof if you stop talking. Stop talking. Like when I coach my salespeople, I'm like saying these three things and then stop talking. And don't talk until the other person talks because we're, we, we can't even stand silence. We have to just fill it. I went to a, an, an asset manager, uh, an asset manager I really respect and like and, and have a lot of faith in. Uh, they were in town in the past couple of years and I went to trying to keep it high level carry. And I went to their, I went to their lunch, their presentation, and they're so brilliant. They're so smart, but it was a 90 minute lunch and they went over and it was wall to wall it was wall to wall data like it was wall to wall presentation and it felt like everyone was held hostage the minute they finally like shut it down again past the 90 minutes everyone was out of there like a rocket and it's like if you had spoken for 30 minutes made all of the same points or most of the same points and then spent that hour meeting with, shaking hands with, answering questions from the advisors that were in the room, it would have been a wholly different thing. It was sad to me because I know these folks are good. Yeah. I know the product is good. And it was just tough to watch them sort of misapprehend what really moves the needle on human behavior. So keep it, keep it punchy, right? Keep it punchy. And I love the idea of, of even in a presentation, keeping it short and then taking questions. I, I think that's a fabulous way to get it to be more conversational and you know, more of a conversation and less of a presentation. I wanted to, I, I mentioned this to you before we um, hopped in the studio that I'm watching this documentary. I've just started it and it's called dying laughing or something like that. So it's basically a documentary about stand-up comedy. And it's like all your favorite stand-up comedians and they're talking. It's really interesting. I 
have long believed that like improv and sort of stand up is a really interesting skill set for sales training. And not that any salesperson would subject themselves to that, but maybe they should. So anyway, they were talking about this and they were talking about if you can imagine what it's like to be a stand up comedian and how just, you know, awkward and nerve wracking and all the things that, that kind of go into that. And one of the things that they said was it kind of summarizes everything we've talked about here. Most of the comedians said when they prepared their whole skit or sketch or whatever you call it, whatever the set, and they memorized all the jokes and they did all that, they bombed. No one thought it was funny. The moments of laughter happened when it was real and off the cuff and engaging and authentic and all the things that you can't script. <clears throat> and so if we took a page out of that book, how would our presentations change? And I think about the example you just gave. If they if they had to be more off the cuff, if they only were able to, sh to show five slides and the rest of the time they just had to figure it out and talk, what would they have done and how much better would that lunch have been? Yeah. And how much better would it have been if they made people laugh? Yeah. There's, um, I'm going to forget, I'm going to forget the name of it. It's like the five obstructions or something like that. It was um, it was a documentary film about Lars von Trier, this sort of famous uh, filmmaker, and it was on putting constraints on his filmmaking. Like he hates animation, and so this person came in and said, "Hey, you have to make a short movie using animation that you love." And I think sometimes, and then you know he he comes up with these five different films, and they're brilliant, of course. And he talks about the growth that occurs when we put limitations on ourselves, right? So I think there's power in saying, look, maybe I have a 90 minute steak dinner here, but let's not like, what's the most I could do with 15 minutes or like what's the most I could do with 20 minutes. And I think there's growth in limitation, which is kind of a funny thing to think about, but I think it's, I think it's a powerful thing. And it really ties to our theme of, of inversion, doesn't it? It does. It's, it turns this whole idea of like you have 90 minutes and you typically would do this, but what if you didn't? Yeah. Well, let's take some of our own medicine here and and, and stop here. I think we've given folks a lot to think about. Yeah. Uh, Stacey, just uh, we we joke around a lot, but a sincere uh, note of thanks to you. This has been such a joy. You're, you're brilliant. And I've loved combining your observations from the wild uh, with my nerdery. It's been four really fun conversations, so I appreciate it you and all you do in our industry. Oh gosh, right back at you. I can't I can't think of a better way to say that. It is for me, I said it this morning. I said I just keep thinking that if Daniel Crosby, Dr. Daniel Crosby was a salesperson, he would crush it. And then that makes me think about when you said, yes, except salespeople have really low IQs. Maybe a low point in the conversation we had Except that as I was playing this out, I thought, yeah, but if he was really brave, he'd be the one salesperson who had the high IQ. And I think there's so much magic. Literally, my LinkedIn post today was about raising money isn't the skill. The skill is understanding human behavior. And I mean that like 
in my heart of hearts. So you are a gift to every fund manager, every financial advisor, and anyone doing sales, myself included. Well, go back and listen to the episode so you can know that I didn't actually say that salespeople have no idea. <laughs> Stacey, you're wonderful. Thank you for doing this. And uh, yeah, thanks. It's been a joy. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliates, subsidiaries, and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.